Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Uh, I do like to be transparent about the passages that we study together and that I preach. Uh, Some of them are emotionally demanding and Uh, even are emotionally demanding for me to preach. That was last week's sermon, right? One I was not particularly looking forward to content-wise, as hard words were said. Uh, Some passages are easy to preach emotionally. We enjoy them. Uh, There are some passages that are intellectually demanding. Uh, This is one of those passages. Uh, If you were to randomly walk into a conservative theological library and pull seven different books on this passage, you will get seven different readings on this passage. Uh, It is an exceedingly uh, challenging parable that Jesus is going uh, to give to his people. I'm going to do my best to present to you how I understand it, Um, but this is a toughie, and I'd be upfront about that. So, God's Word, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. (laughs) But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, your word is perfect. We are not. There is a gap between the two. Would your spirit be pleased to work within us 
for Christ's sake. Amen. Learning is a dangerous thing. The more you learn, the more you realize learning is, is formative. Meaning, as you assimilate facts, as you gain information, as you learn data, kind of by definition, those facts, that information, the data, it, it shapes who you are. Learning in, in some fashion is always formative. Example, the more you learn about music, it changes you. Right? You, you can't know everything about music and still be comfortable listening to the same old bands that you used to prior to starting to learn. In fact, actually, one of the things that often happens with any kind of realm uh, is that the more you learn, the less you actually appreciate. But the things that you do appreciate, you appreciate more richly. Right, I remember when I first started learning to play guitar. I, I loved uh, the radio. I listened to the music all the time, loved rock and roll, listened to lots of things. And then as I began to get just to be barely proficient at the instrument, I realized that some of the people on the radio were playing the exact same thing that I was five weeks into playing the instrument. Funny enough, I didn't really enjoy those bands anymore. I've never really listened to them ever since. It ruined my joy. But the longer I played the instrument, the more I began to appreciate what real guitar music sounds like. And I have an appreciation, a a richness, and a love now that I would never have had. The more you learn, the more challenging it is to begin to appreciate things. My task today is to take a passage that is uh, challenging and recognizing that our mission is to grow to be more proficient in the Scriptures. My, My task is to see if we can grow in our appreciation of who God is and what God has done. That's my goal. That's my task. It's a big one. Uh, particularly for a challenging passage like this, but to see if we can together cultivate a little bit of appreciation. Now, I, I think to do that, you do need to at least have just the 20-second synopsis of the book of Matthew. Jesus is king of God's kingdom, and he's a different kind of king. That wasn't 20 seconds, that was about six, but that's the summary of the book of Matthew. Right? Jesus is a king. But he's not the kind of king that you normally expect. He doesn't rule an earthly kingdom. He's not some sort of villainous politician that says one thing here and a different thing there. He's not the kind of person that's only looking out for his own good. He's a totally different kind of king. He's perfect and righteous and true. He is God and he is man. That has... uh, created an amazing kind of ministry for him as he's been able to cultivate relationships with all of the bad people in society. Kind of everywhere he goes, the the outcasts, the rejects, the bad people constantly affiliated with him and asked him questions and invited him over for meals and had him into their home. 
I mean, it's, again, amazing to think about that you have to imagine a large part of the time when Jesus traveled, he stayed at the houses of prostitutes or at the houses of uh, what we would consider to be traitors to the nation of Israel. Amazing to think about. And that ministry has kind of come to a head in chapter 21 and chapter 22, where uh, Sunday of the last week of his earthly ministry like this, Uh, The Sunday before, he has the triumphal entry in 21 where they crown him king. Monday morning, he goes in and he cleans the temple. He runs out all of the money changers and makes everybody mad. And then Tuesday, he begins to teach. And in these lessons in the temple, seated kind of off to the side in one of the courts, we have some of the most kind of direct and challenging teaching that Jesus has done in the book of Matthew. In fact, actually, the, the previous section of 21 where we finished last week is um, it's downright offensive to the people who are listening. Right? He's just told them a parable, and again, a parable is just uh, it's an extended illustration. It's a story designed to teach a point. He's told them that uh, the good people of the society, the scribes, the Pharisees, Uh, the chief priests and the teachers, he's told them they're on the wrong side. They're the bad guys in the story. When you go to read the Gospel of Matthew, he's he's teaching us to, to be reminded that those moral people that we would long to have had as our neighbors, those people who kept up their yards and uh, acted like good people, they were actually the villains in the story because they were the ones that were getting ready to kill Jesus. Meanwhile, all the bad people, the ones that we would never want our children to associate with, the ones that we would ourselves be embarrassed to be caught in public with, they're the good guys because they're bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus and being transformed. Chapter 22 builds on that reality and continues to challenge those that are listening. It's a continuation of the same interaction. So he has chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and elders of the people and some of the lay around him. And he continues his kind of uh, full frontal assault on their worldview in chapter 22. Challenging them to think about who God is and who they are. Now, I could have crafted a sermon designed to kind of punch you in the mouth. I think I did that last week, so I'm not going to do it this week. Uh, Instead, intentionally kind of challenging us as we interact with Jesus' parable to contemplate really just the beauty of the Lord God. First thing I want you to kind of contemplate, the uh, idea we're going to present here is uh, for you to just spend a moment pondering how generous God is, right? How generous God is specifically to you. All right, so 22 verse 1, Jesus spoke to them in a parable, saying he continues this method of teaching, a story designed to kind of offend them, but to make a point along the way. And you have what is perhaps one of the just most delightful verses following in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Okay, so what is Jesus' kingdom like? We've had a lot of different descriptions throughout the book, but here is a kind of new tweak to his description. 
Is his kingdom one of grumpiness? Right, where everybody's a, an ultra type A, everybody's wound so tight that we're all just like, all the time and just grumpy with each other constantly. Or maybe Jesus is that way. Maybe that's how God is with his people. He's wound so tight, he's just angry at us all, all the time. You know, in fact, no, that, that can't be right. Maybe it's instead, it's just that God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is just one of no fun. Right? Where all we get to do here is just be miserable until we die. And then when we die, maybe it gets better after that. Right? Which, honestly, that may appeal to you if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s. It really is not an appealing way to evangelize a 17-year-old. Right? Hey, life's miserable in the church. Come be miserable for the rest of your life till you die. Jesus here, interestingly, I love what he does. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to the biggest party you can possibly imagine. Whoa, what? Now, I mean, again, this is not, doesn't kind of fully translate to us because we don't tend to think in these categories, but what is he comparing it to? Look, the kingdom of heaven, it kind of has a baseline for us to think about what it means to be in Christ's kingdom It's the kind of party a king throws when the prince, when his son gets married, only son. Now, this sort of thing is a big to-do. It's a big party. It's the kind of party only a king can throw. Now, again, we, most of us, don't live in a country that has a king. Maybe we have somebody from a different country here, perhaps. But if you go back and like you read your Old Testament and you think about one thing the Jews knew how to do really well was they knew how to throw a party. Anybody want to guess in your head? Please don't say it out loud. You want to guess in your head how long their wedding reception lasted? A week. A week. Guess how long the honeymoon lasted for the groom? A year. Right? Couldn't go to military service. He was home in the house for a year. He wasn't allowed to go out. Right? They knew how to throw a shindig. Hey, let's get all the friends and family. Let's eat. Let's drink for a week. We're going to have a party. And oh yeah, by the way, when the party's done, every, uh, husband and wife, they're home for a year. There's no splitting them up. Everybody's happy. It's a good thing. And that's what the normal people did. That's just what your average Jewish wedding looked like. Think about then what a king's type of wedding would look like. I mean, what does a royal wedding look like? I mean, food like you've never seen. Quantities of food you've never seen. Celebrations like you've never seen. And again, for a world in which food was perhaps not always easy to come by, man, what a, what a glorious reality. And I think it's intriguing here that as Jesus is now kind of, again, pressing on the offensive against uh, the Jewish leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees, he's very clear in saying, you guys have missed the point. 
Your Judaism that you're kind of manifesting in this time is a dried and withered and crusty and miserable thing. It's that piece of bread that you left out on the counter for a couple of four days and then tried to eat it. Ah, it's terrible. It's like eating sand that's baked into a shape. No, instead, what is, what is the kingdom of heaven like? What is Christ's ministry like? Well, he's describing his kingdom as one of a party thrown by the king that spends all of his resources, all of his energy, all of his excitement on this party. It's interesting when the, the servants go to give the invite, we'll talk about that in a moment, but when they go to give the invite, they are explicit in, in saying, be sure to mention the food. Right, everybody you go talk to, be sure to tell them, oh yeah, by the way, we've, we've got oxen, we've got cow, we've got, it's a big old barbecue. We've got tons of food. Come eat. And the resources of the king are given freely. And I, I love to just, again, think that this is how Jesus views his kingdom. Which honestly then immediately brings a little bit of conviction to us, doesn't it? How many of us, when we interact with Christ's commands, think, ah, this is what the good life looks like. This is what a party looks like. You know what a good party looks like? Obedience to Jesus. But interestingly, that's really largely the point he's making. Interestingly, for most of us, we would say, well, what does a good party look like? It looks like irresponsibility and disobedience. Right? It looks like cut loose. We'll, we'll sin a little. It'll be all right this time. Jesus is like, no, that's, that's not the good life. And friends, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and challenge you. I'll push a little bit on this. That how many of us, when we think about Christ Jesus himself, we think of his, him as being the king of no fun? Right? We think of him as being a crusty old meanie. Who never lets me have a good time? The problem is that's wrong. Jesus is always right. We're always wrong when we disagree. We're missing the point. The kingdom of God is one of generosity. It's like a party. You get to see more of the generosity of the king as uh, to who uh, gets invited to this, right? This would be a, a really big deal. I mean, it's not often that the son of the king, the head of state, this is a a national wedding. It's not often that this kind of wedding would take place and it would have been extremely significant for the nation. So who gets invited? Well, other heads of state, other important people. Other people that are uh, belonging to the uh, elite Right, you think about it, if the, um, you know, the president, one of our presidents, pick one along the way, uh, if their only and oldest son were to be married, who would be invited to that wedding? Well, obviously friends and family, but you'd probably see all the politicians out, wouldn't you? You'd see the prime minister of England. You might see the prime minister of, of Canada or France. You'd see all of the other politicians because this is where the important people go, and this is how generous the king is, that he invites tons of people in. 
He could just throw the massive shindig and and let it be just for him and his family, but instead he invites tons and tons and tons and tons of people. It's a massive guest list. In fact, actually so much so that the way the story is told, the implication is an entire city is invited as part of it. It's a huge guest list, a huge party. And again, I, I think for many of us, we tend to, when we think about God's kingdom, we don't get impressed by the fact that people get invited. Like, it tends to be so much of a part of the background of our mind that we're like, well, yeah, of course God would invite me. Well, of course he would. Why wouldn't he? And in doing so, we've kind of tipped our hand to show how inflated of a view of self we have. (laughs) Right? Of course God would invite me. I mean, don't you know me? I mean, how much would any of you have been impressed with if you had received an actual real invitation to one of the English royal marriages over the last 15 years, right? I couldn't name them to you because I don't know actually who the royalty are, and I wasn't really bothered to look them up, and I don't really care enough to use them as an illustration. But when they got married, if they had sent you an invitation, right, most of you would have had kind of two thoughts at the exact same time, wouldn't you? This has to be a prank. Right? Because I don't belong. It has to be a joke. Did Michael do this to me? Of course he didn't. He doesn't know who these people are. But it has to be a prank. And secondly, and a little bit more quietly, we would say, well, of course, somebody has finally realized how important I am. Now, we wouldn't say that quite so loudly, but you laugh because you know it's true. Right? We would have these two things kind of in our brains at the same time. And it shows again just how distorted our view of God's kingdom is. That there's a little bit of a like, well, of course God would invite me because he's finally realized how special I am. The problem is, no, that's not true. (laughs) God's invitation has nothing to do with how special you are. It has everything to do with how special he is. How merciful he is. How generous he is that he has determined to take the riches of heaven and to share them abundantly with his people. The story continues as the invitation is given. And I love this sends the servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, and they're like, nah, I can't be bothered. Verse 3, eh, I'm just, nah, it's not going to happen. Okay. And again, we, we tend to see this and read that and think, well, that's not that big of a deal. Our friends cancel on us all the time. You don't cancel on the king, and you don't cancel on the king for the party of a lifetime. You just don't miss that. All you can eat for a month, you go, man. Right? You're at that party no matter what. They just can't be bothered. Verse 4 to me is one of the most shocking verses in here is that the king sends servants again. Like, this is the king. And his people couldn't be bothered to come. The other guest couldn't be bothered to come. And he sends a second invitation. Right? That's really quite shocking. Why would you even bother? Like, if they can't be bothered to go enjoy your party, why would you give them a second chance? Oh, because he's generous. 
He's so generous, he sends his servants again, verse 4, be sure to tell them about the food. Right? Tell them how many, how many resources we're spending to make sure this is a great party. You're going to eat like you've never eaten. It's going to be a great time. How generous is this king? How generous is our God? Verse 5, uh, first response, total apathy. <laughs> Ignore them. Right? I love it. We have Jesus referencing somebody ghosting somebody else. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, right? The invitation's given, they don't open the text so that it doesn't look like it's been read, and that way they don't get caught having seen it. They can act like, oh, I didn't know. The next group, they pay attention to it, but they say, I can't be bothered. Your party's a really good thing, but I've got to take care of myself. I've got my business, I've got my activities, I've got my life, I've got my family. It's all about me. Third category of people, well, they just get angry and they kill the servants. And I love that you see in those kind of three things just such common responses to Christ and to his kingdom, right? Total apathy, ghosting, I'm just going to act like Christ doesn't exist. Two, well, I can't really be bothered because I'm all about myself. It's all about my life. And then third is just outright hatred. Obviously, the third is the least common of the three. Uh, Certainly in our country, the first two are the most common. But the king is so generous, the invitation is given again. It's amazing. And in fact, actually, as we get to the latter part of it, um, you see that, uh, verse 10, the king is so adamant about having a great party that when all of the important people can't come, he sends his servants out to the streets to find the hobos and the rejects and the losers and the first Corinthians, such were some of you, and bring them in. Right? None, none of you noble birth, none of you, you know, the handsome, the, the intellectuals, the, the, the brilliant, the great, the grand, bring in the, the rejects. And we're going to have a party with them. And I, I love to get, like, again, the mental picture of what this would have felt like. Can you imagine it again if uh, the British royalty, whichever wedding it was, and I, again, have no idea who these people are, but if you did know who they were. And if all of the British upper crust people couldn't show up. If all of the important people refused to show up. And so they sent all of the royal guards out and just found all of the homeless folks in London and in Ealing, all around the city and said, come on, and brought them into Buckingham Palace for a month-long party. How awesome would that be? That would be amazing. And it would have been also just the single most disturbing thing you could possibly imagine, right? Can you imagine the queen sharing a month-long feast with like the homeless guy that's been living down the street. That's the portrait that Jesus is laying out for his kingdom, is that he's so incredibly generous, so incredibly generous, that his people are invited in to receive all of his resources. There's a constancy to his calling, and they're given all of the joy and all of the blessing. And then even more so, the crazy thing is all of the belonging. We're going to see that in just a moment. But the the people that get there, the guests that get there, belong there. How generous our God is. 
And friends, I would, again, as just a brief application here, warn us is I think our narcissism and our entitlement and our overinflated sense of self-worth and our pursuit of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness at all costs really gets in the way of genuinely appreciating God's generosity. Because when I deserve things, I don't say thank you. I say it's about time. And unfortunately, many of us, because we believe we deserve things, when we interact with God, we say it's about time, rather than just overwhelming gratitude at everything. The fact that he hasn't just incinerated all of us already. The fact that he's even willing to talk with us at all, how generous he is. Now, there's a contrast to his generosity in this parable, and this is the part that is largely aimed at the priests and the the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the contrast to his generosity is he gives generosity to the, the, the low, to the losers, like you'd not believe, but to those that reject him. It's not generosity, it's justice. It's absolute justice. That's what happens in verses 5 and 6. He sends the servants around with the second invitation. What happens? Well, they kill those servants. They reject him. This is obviously a parable, but it's making the point that the Jews have rejected Israel. I mean, so the Jews have rejected the prophets of Israel. They are rejecting the Messiah of Israel, and they are rejecting the very Son of God. They've murdered the prophets. They're getting ready to even murder Jesus in a moment. Uh, and though the Jews have done that as Jews, it is common to the, the human heart. It's common to the fallen condition of man to reject God and to reject His Word. And what happens to God's enemies? Well, this is where Jesus is really beginning to kind of make a turning point versus, I mean, chapter 24 is going to get really pointed on this. But that God is so just that his judgment will follow. He will destroy his enemies. And what happens here in this kind of uh, parable? Well, the guests say no, so they kill his servants So he sends his army to destroy their entire city and burn it to the ground. And destroys them all. Nothing left. It's burned with fire. It's consumed in its entirety. The lives of his servants are so important to him, he will not ignore them. And interestingly, as part of his justice too, you get this intriguing assessment of what it's like what his view of the people who don't show up is, right? The, the first round of invitations, the first crew of guests are the important people, the significant people, the beautiful people, the rich people, the, you know, the, those that have political influence. And what's Jesus say in verse 8, the words of the king, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Just because they were wise by the world's standards, right? Austin set us up for success with our order of worship here, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, just because they had all of the worldly wisdom, just because they had all of the, the blessings that the world had to offer, they don't belong here. 
They don't belong as a part of God's kingdom based on their worldly status. In fact, those people are considered unworthy of God's blessings. So you have God's generosity kind of described in his constant interaction with his people. You have his justice just briefly described as he destroys his enemies. But you get to see kind of his power over all of it in the latter half of the parable. Verse 10, he sends the servants out again. Go find the losers. Go find the rejects. Go find you and me. Go find people like us, those that don't belong, those that will never be invited to a king's feast. Invite them. Bring them in. And uh, as with uh, this parable, it reads almost like a, you know, a dream. You know when you're in your dreams how there's no scene change? It's just something's happening and then the next thing's happening and the next thing's happening and none of them ever fully make sense and they don't kind of fully fit together, but that's how it works. Uh, this has already happened. You may not have caught it, but the feast was made ready, but the feast is still ready as he sends his army off to burn a city to the ground and come back and the feast is still ready. And I can't cook, but I'm fairly certain meals don't stay ready that long for you to go burn a city to the ground, but that's okay. That's how the story is told. Um, Here, there's a part to the story that we don't fully understand. Jesus doesn't give us all the details. Verse 11, all of the the kind of rejects have been brought in to the party. And you get the impression like it's the the wedding's just been had and now it's the the giant gathering, the, the reception, the shindig. And the king, the father of the groom, walks in and he looks around and he's like, what a great party. How awesome, how wonderful, how, how exciting. What is that guy doing? That's kind of how it reads. One of the guys isn't dressed correctly. He's not wearing the appropriate wedding garment. Now, we don't know where these wedding garments came from. The best guess is that the king himself actually gave them. But the story doesn't tell. Jesus doesn't include that in the parable. We just know that one of the guys isn't dressed correctly. And intriguingly, the king immediately goes to him and says, hey, look, everybody's here for the party. Everybody here is ready for the party, but you don't fit in. And he's, at this point, intriguingly, not mad. His question in verse 12 is so gentle and so generous. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? How come you don't look the part? And honestly, how can you crash a wedding that they invited the street folks to? How do you crash a wedding that literally everybody was invited to? But that's what this guy has done. And interestingly, this is where the story gets really complex, is that the guy is kind of acknowledging that he doesn't belong is reduced to abject fear, even to the point of not being able to answer. He's speechless. Jesus explicitly makes that point. He snuck in. He doesn't belong. Perhaps, again, maybe they had as part of the the great party that the king was giving presents to everybody, and they all had wedding garments, wedding robes that they were supposed to wear. Perhaps that's it. Maybe it's that he didn't go home and get cleaned up and put his own garments on and show up. We don't know where that garment comes from. We just know that he doesn't fit. He doesn't belong. And in doing so, Jesus is highlighting 
that in his kingdom, he is the one who gets to set the terms. It's not us. Right? The, the king, the host of the party, gets to set the terms of the party. Not the attendees. Right? If you, if you come to my house and I'm having a giant party... And my wife says, you have to take your shoes off in order to be a part of the party. Guess what you have to do if you want to be a part of the party? You got to take your shoes off. Now, if she says you get to leave your shoes on, you get to leave your shoes on. She's the one who gets to set that rule, not you. If you want to go running all through the mud and then show up into my house at my party, guess what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to ask you to leave. Because it's my house, and it's my party, and it's my rules. Likewise, if you show up and start breaking all of my things, harming all of my books, things like that, I'll ask you to leave. I'm, I'm, I will be mad at you for that. But go, right? You're not welcome. I get to set the rules because it's my party. Interestingly here, that's the point Jesus is making in regards to the king with his own kingdom. It's his party. He gets to make the rules. And here we have a guest who's kind of tried to sneak in under his own rules. And friends, that doesn't work. In fact, actually, the king's response is, if you don't see it from the the perspective of the king's rules, it's really quite excessive. He looks at the servant, says, bind him so he can't sneak back in, chuck him out into the darkness. It's probably, at this point, quite late in the evening. Chuck him out into the darkness, and oh yeah, by the way, into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is the Old Testament language for destruction, hell, uh, God's wrath. And then explains it with commentary in verse 14 that, look, there are tons of people that are invited, but only a few of those people actually come into the kingdom of God. Uh, There are millions and billions and billions of people on this planet that hear the word of God, but not everyone enters into the kingdom. And I'll end with this. In this, we get to see just a a, a glimpse into how God himself perceives his own rule how God himself perceives his own kingdom. And if we wanted to kind of be technical, we could say how God himself perceives the life to come. How does God view the life to come in in his rule and reign? It's one where he's pouring out the resources of heaven on his people. It's one in which he's destroyed all of his enemies and in one, it's one in which he's in charge of all of the rules, not us. And I think it might be very useful for us when we contemplate the ministry of Jesus and we contemplate his good gospel and we contemplate his kindness to us, when we contemplate what salvation means that we be willing to engage these kind of three ideas. That the backdrop of all of this is that God is always generous with you. In fact, actually, as we saw in our order of worship, he's so generous with you that he forgives you your sins in Jesus Christ. 
but that if you are not in Christ, your sins will be handled with justice and destruction. And if we are God's people, and this is, I think, where our application is probably the most important, we don't get to set the rules. He does. And I would challenge you just briefly that you learn your Bible so you learn how the king conducts his kingdom instead of how you want to imaginary land make it be. Because there will always be unwritten rules as to how you think God's kingdom will be. You will either make them up yourself or the devil will provide them or you will define them by scripture. Those are the only sources. And so I would encourage you, learn your Bible so you learn the generosity of your king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his kingdom. We thank you that he does rule and reign over us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins we have in him. Thank you for his redemption. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We pray, O Lord, that you would increase our faith and forgive our sin. For Christ's sake, amen.